You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 170. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Sklar. Welcome, everyone. Welcome. You have reached another Local Maximum. It is now May 2021. Uh... Big week this week in cryptocurrency, of course. Ethereum is pumping. Ethereum Classic is pumping. Dogecoin. What happened to Dogecoin? That's so crazy. I uh, I don't know about you, but I actually watched Saturday Night Live for the first time in like uh, you know five six years uh, to see Elon Musk, uh, you know, be the be the host. I think most of the most of the sketches were not that great, but uh, what, what can you do? It's actually part of sketch comedy where a lot of the sketches don't work out. It's sort of par for the course, but uh, you know, only the good ones get remembered. Although there are people who say SNL has gone downhill. Maybe they're right. But uh, anyway, Dogecoin, uh, he's been pumping Dogecoin for quite a while, months and months. And you know, if you buy the rumor, sell the news, uh, well, <laughs> Dogecoin took a, took a bit of a dump during during the Saturday Night Live performance. Um, what is Dogecoin? A lot of people, some people I know are starting to get into it as an alternative to Bitcoin and Ethereum. Look, Dogecoin is, it's a joke coin. Uh, and it is, you know, they can print as much as they want uh, or, you know, create, generate out of thin air as much Dogecoin as they want. So do you really, uh, you know, where is the value there? I don't know. But uh, if it's, uh, you know, memes can, can, uh, you know, can can shoot up, can shoot down. Some people will make money. I don't know. It's uh, it's a crazy world out there in crypto. A, a truly crazy world. I uh, I don't have any Dogecoin. I did try mining Dogecoin years and years ago, but I know I got less than one. So so one Dogecoin is less than a dollar. So unless it goes to like uh, a really high amount, uh, I will not be upset that I that I threw it away. All right. So we have a couple of things to talk about today. I want to talk about some of the uh, uh, news from the European Union and what they think about Bayesian inference. Not really what they think about Bayesian inference, but uh, how it was referenced in one of their regulatory documents. I know regulatory documents, not that interesting. Bayesian inference, very interesting. So we're going to talk about that. And then finally, we're going to get into a little bit of like, you know, a network or graph algorithm. When it comes to machine learning, artificial intelligence, and uh, how that's different from like kind of traditional machine learning algorithms, I think it's a really interesting topic, and uh, I hope you enjoy. So first, let's talk about uh, the EU. So the uh, uh, the headline that we got from uh, uh, Stat Modeling at Columbia: EU proposing to regulate the use of Bayesian estimation. So I see a headline that like that, and I really hate the idea of regulating math or AI. And it sort of brings to mind, I think it was an episode of Number File I saw once, and I could not find the exact example, but it was like the, um, the UK wanted to uh, propose a regulation on cryptography, which is really just, you know, mathematical transformations, taking one set of data, putting it through a transformation, and taking another set of data. And they proposed making X, Y, and Z illegal. And then some cryptographer from a university says, this literally makes my book on cryptography an illegal book. So how absurd is that? Um, But 
I wanted to look into what they are doing because, so first of all, it's like, well, <laughs> if you're trying to regulate this stuff, uh, you're you're like a bull in a China shop. You're going to knock over all the, the the law can become. If you think about it, if you kind of make try to make certain aspects of math illegal, the law is going to become so complicated that it, um, it it it's hard to tell exactly where they're going to come down. Uh, but sometimes these commissions, you know, there are humans there and sometimes they do sit down and say, OK, let me some, come up with some good ideas. And even if I personally oppose uh, imposing uh, those ideas on everyone, it's uh, it's interesting to see what's happening here. What, do they have any ideas on like what is a good practice when it comes to implementing AI or essentially uh, advanced statistical algorithms? Because I have to say, you know, a lot of times when you think about you know, AI is dangerous. You're not talking about Terminator. They're not talking about, um, as I've heard put it before, you know, some robot is stocking the shelves and all of a sudden they decide to kill all humans. No, they're talking about statistical algorithms and statistical decision making and when that's appropriate and when that's not appropriate or when that's going to be legal or when that's going to be not uh, not legal. Uh, our, our brains use statistical models essentially in order to identify you know what we're seeing for example the visual cortex i hope they don't rule that our visual cortex is illegal because then people we will all have a problem <laughs> a big problem but um let's see what they say so the european commission because there are actually some good ideas here the european commission just released their proposal for a regulation on uh, a european approach for artificial intelligence and uh, as this points out, they uh, get to a diff definition of artificial intelligence, and um, I'll just read it out loud. Artificial intelligence system, an AI system, means software that is developed with one or more of the techniques and approaches listed in Annex 1 and can, for a given set of human-defined objectives, generate outputs such as content, predictions, recommendations, or decisions influencing the environments they interact with. So already we're talking about something, I think the key word is decisions. Obviously recommendations and predictions uh, all kind of feed into decisions. So it's essentially decisions that are based on uh, a statistical algorithm, automated decisions. And so I think there's a valid question here of like, you know, what's the good way to do it? What's a bad way to do it? When do you want a human in the loop? So included in the definition of AI that they list on that NX1 thing that they say is that uh, statistical approaches, Bayesian estimation, and search and optimization methods. So essentially Bayesian estimation, and I've gone over Bayesian estimation a lot on this podcast, so I don't need to kind of define it again. Well, I'll define it quickly, but um, if you're interested in what Bayesian inference is, definitely check out uh, Bayesian thinking. I think that's episode, is it 78? Let me let me make sure. Uh, localmaxradio.com slash 78. Ooh, internet is a little bit slow today. Yeah, so episode 78 is on Bayesian thinking. Episode 21 is on... Uh, probability. I have a lot of ideas on probability. And of course, like just the two first episodes, zero and one, are also on Bayesian inference. Uh, so I'll link to all of that in the show notes page, localmaxradio.com slash 170. But essentially, Bayesian inference is taking a, um, a probabilistic model of the world. Hey, I think the world might be um, in, you know, I, I think the world might exist in uh, these 
probabilistic processes, and there are several of them. And I have an idea of which ones are more likely and which ones are less likely. And then as I gather more data, I can zero in on which models of the world or which model, and usually it's, it's a specific question, which models of a specific question that I'm trying to answer uh, more more exactly, which answers to my question are more likely and which answers to my question are less likely. So in other words, it's just learning from data. It's taking data and saying, okay, this means that uh, I used to think X, but now the data contradicts X and it makes Y look a lot more likely. So now I'm going to start to believe Y more than X. That's Bayesian estimation. Even if you don't know probability theory, or even if you don't do Bayesian estimation, uh, you're kind of doing it subconsciously all the time where you form a belief and then you kind of decide or, or, or maybe you start off open-minded and you think there are several possibilities and then as information comes in, you kind of, uh, you kind of eliminate some of them. Uh, and um, I think in episode 105, uh, I was talking to uh, a mathematician. Ah, what's her name? Oh my God, I forgot. That's really bad. Hold on. Uh, Sophie. Sophie Carr. Right. Sophie Carr in episode one size uh, talked about it as a giant game of guess who, where you have many ideas on what the answer could be and you're constantly eliminating them. So even children do Bayesian estimation. So you can't make it illegal. That's not what they're trying to do. But they are including it as a technique that could be regulated. So uh what does that mean? I mean, so according to an article from the Brooklyn, Brookings Institute that I read, um, you know, what's what's a risk from AI that the EU is talking about here? So, uh, again, uh, they, they do claim that this, not again, but just um, one of their claims is that this will outlaw a, a Chinese-style social credit system. And I hope that's true um, in that you uh, you can't have like a society-wide system run by the government that kind of scores each individual person based on a non-transparent statistical model and says these are good citizens and these are bad citizens. Now, even a transparent statistical model, I wouldn't want to do that because that's sort of that is uh, that is central control. That's that's total control, totalitarianism in terms of telling people. Uh, you know, this is exactly how we want you to behave, and this is exactly how we don't want you to behave, which is the exact opposite from, you know, one of the phrases in the U.S. Declaration of Independence, pursuit of happiness. That's, you know, whatever each, it's kind of up to each individual on how they want to pursue happiness. So uh, it's going to kind of, it, it might outlaw some of those things, but I'm also concerned it could, you know, it, it could regulate certain things that um, that might be good. For example, so in, in the United States, insurance is highly regulated uh, in terms of what statistical models you're allowed to use. Maybe you could say, well, that's good because we want, you know, non-discrimination. But on the other hand, uh, maybe the most optimal model uh, is not allowed to be used for insurance. And that increases our insurance rates. So that's a possibility as well. Uh, specifically, one of the things the Brookings article mentions that um, that these uh, that these regulations would would tell us is that it would declare deep fakes and doctors' photos uh, not illegal. You could do them, but um, deep fakes is kind of considered to be a video that looks real, created by AI, and uh, uh, doctored photos. Well, you've all seen Photoshop, and essentially you have to just declare that this was. 
this was artificially altered by AI. How you how do you um, how do you take a, a regulation like that and and fairly impose it? How do you uh, how do you make sure that everybody is playing by the rules here? Because I am. I'm not sure if, you know, you can probably make a doctored photo and just not tell anybody and put it out on the Internet. And unless it's something completely ridiculous, how would anybody know that you're breaking the law? So that's one thing that I'd be concerned about. Um, so there, uh, and and so the uh, one thing that they want to regulate is just information, sort of uh, they, they want us to know where the, this information is came from, which kind of sounds good on the surface. And also, the way it's being sold is they want transparency. So they want humans in the loop for some things in terms of decision making. So does this make sense in many cases for real world AI uh, systems to ask these questions? Like, hey, if I make a statistical model, a machine learning model, I say I want transparency. And when the final decision is made, I want humans in the loop. Oftentimes, for many cases, it does make sense that yes, when you're building these kinds of things, uh, you do want these things. They're a good idea. doesn't necessarily mean I support imposing those good ideas on everybody, but I, I think those can be good ideas. Although sometimes you don't want transparency, like I said, because some machine learning algorithms, like deep learning algorithms, can be more effective, more accurate, but oftentimes non-transparent. And sometimes that's the, uh, that, that, that's the, uh, the trade-off that you really want. The trade-off thing is um, is interesting. I don't know if, uh, for example, if we're designing a visual cortex, if we're designing essentially a machine that can identify objects, those can be very, very complicated. And uh, and oftentimes if you, if you impose on it, well, we want it to be transparent, we want to know exactly what the machine is doing, then we're not going to have as good of a system. And so for something like self-driving cars, uh, well, you could go either way. Like, I want the best visual system because I want the car to be the safest. On the other hand, if the car does run into trouble, I want to be able to figure out why that happened. So it's uh, it, it, it's a trade-off that is not exactly clear what you should do. And um, it's it's something that we'll have to figure out over time. Uh I I did talk about timestamping a few episodes ago. Man, I should just pull up my entire episode archive right now because I am bringing up so many old episodes. Um, that would be episode. Uh, that would be the episode of Wordproof, episode one sixty seven, where the claim is that uh, maybe if our social media sites or hopefully our new information sharing sites that are decentralized kind of require time stamping then we can figure out we, i don't know if we could figure out whether photos are doctored or uh but we will have some transparency in terms of uh you know when information was derived if that makes sense so all right today we're going to talk about so uh wh what wh what do you think about regulating AI, uh, what what is your sense of what problem the EU is trying to solve? Uh, GDPR, has it been going well? Has it not been going so well? And um, what do you think about this? Go to uh, maximum.locals.com to go to our Locals page and, uh, 
and share your opinion or email the show, localmaxradio at gmail.com. Okay, so today we're going to talk about machine learning algorithms that are based off of a network or a graph. So what's a network or a graph? And this gets into like real nerdy uh, computer science stuff or real like low-level computer science stuff, but a graph is kind of a collection of nodes with connections between them. So a good example would be on something like Facebook or Foursquare, of course, when you have a friend graph. So I could be friends with you. Uh, I could have a hundred friends. Maybe you have a hundred friends. And so it's not like everybody has one connection or everybody has, um, you know, uh, it, it, it's kind of, it's a very, very free form data structure because anyone could have any number of friends. Um, and when it comes to machine learning algorithms, usually like, let's say I want to understand something about a person and I might look at information about that person, like where they live what words they tend to type, what, um, you know, their, their height, how many pictures they post, all that sort of stuff. That is kind of base layer features that I could use to determine something about that person. Let's say I want to determine their political leaning, like how likely I think they are to vote for my candidate if I send them an ad. There are a lot of, a lot of p political, a lot of politicos who want to do something like that. So, okay. Uh, I could use features to try to determine whether that person is uh, is 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 in that group. Uh, but what if we want to make use of the graph? What if we want to make use of who their friends are? Well, I could come up with kind of um, first order features on that, like how many friends do they have? Uh, how often do they add friends? That kind of thing, and those can directly be used for features to to learn their political leanings but then of course you're like well wait a minute doesn't the political leanings of the the don't the political leanings of the friends uh influence the political leanings of the person and this is for not just politics but this is all marketing so uh the answer is of course yes but then there's kind of a question of well this is not a single feature this is like i have a I, i'm trying to learn a feature of a single person but then they have a hundred friends and all of them have features and theoretically all of those features can be, um, you know, uh, uh, can be filtered down into the single friends to try to figure out, you know, what, what the answer is for that friend. So for that is it, it kind of gets overwhelming uh, if you're just trying to look at it in terms of, hey, I have features and I'm trying to learn an answer. So what you really need is a graph algorithm where essentially there's information at each node, so each person has information, and then uh, all, all of them also has information that gets shared back and forth across the friend graph or across any graph that you have. And so uh, let me give an example right now. One example is PageRank, and some of you who are in tech will have heard of PageRank. It's fairly old now. I want to say maybe not 30 years, maybe 25 years old. So this is from Google. This is from Larry Page. So it's about web pages, but it's not about, uh, I don't think it's named for web pages. It's named for Larry Page. It's kind of funny that the founder of Google is named Page, uh, but that is, uh, <laughs> that's, there's a lot of coincidences like that. So this is back in the 90s. This was Google before it was big tech before it was, dare I say, evil, even before it declared itself not evil. This was just 
uh, a few grad students trying to figure out how to find the best sites online. And, well, yes, they were well-connected grad students at uh, Stanford, so they were very well-positioned to start Google, but there was no... Uh, there was no guarantee that Google was going to succeed because there were so many search engines there uh, in existence. And I think a lot of the investors at the time would have said, you want me to invest in another search engine? Are you kidding? There are so many of these. So PageRank uses a graph and essentially um, starts the realization that the internet is and was at the time a graph of pages because each page has links to other pages. And so every page has inbound links that are uh, websites that link to it. And it also has outbound links, um, sites that it links to. And the idea was that more important websites have more inbound links and less important websites have less inbound links links. So somehow my importance is related to the importance of all the sites that link to me. Now you can't calculate this all in one go because if you think to if you think about it, let's say I link to let's say website A links to website B and website B links to website C and website C links to website D and website D links back to website A, well you kind of get a circle of links and that could actually be a problem for PageRank because that's called like a link farm. And early Google had to really deal with that because, um, you know, uh, because it, it would make these pages look like they're important when really they're not. They're kind of, they're all um, bad pages that link to each other. Um, but PageRank did work pretty well in its first iteration. And what it would do is it would sign an importance to each page and then it would say, okay, after each step, I am going to keep something like 15% of my importance. And then 85% of my importance score, I am going to send out to my outbound links uh, equally. Like, so if I link to five pages, I'm going to send those, um, I'm going to send that those important points, importance points to those five pages. And in each step, I'm sending out some, in, some, uh, some score and I'm receiving some score from pages that link to me. So each step should contain an equal number. So there's kind of a conservation of importance score. So if like, you know, if, um, if, if I start with a million pages and they're all initially signed a score of one, uh, in the first step of this algorithm, there's a total of a million. In the second step and third step and so on, there will also be a total of a million because we're, um, you know, people are sending uh, part of their score out and receiving some of their score from other pages, and therefore you are not, um, you know, you're not destroying any any score. But over time, uh, what what happens was eventually, if if you keep on calculating this and doing this, uh, uh, you know, taking these steps over and over again, where I'm sending out score and I'm receiving score, eventually you reach some kind of an equilibrium where every node is sending out the same amount that it's receiving. And what happens is this gives a page rank score, which is kind of the importance of each page. And it, it's sort of, and I think that the 85% was um, not arbitrary. It was determined to be about 
uh, you know, about right. Like that's that's sort of what they, it was. It's kind of arbitrary, but it was determined based on the internet. Like this is the one that worked pragmatically the best. But basically, it's equivalent to saying, okay, I start on a random web page, and uh, for each web page, there's a 15% chance I stop and an 85% chance I click one of the links, and I keep on going until I find uh, until I stop. And then when I stop, what web page am I at? And so the web pages you're more likely to be at rank higher, and the websites you're less likely to be at rank lower. Now, this seems very simple. Again, it can be gamed pretty easily by link farms, but this algorithm beat all the other algorithms in existence beforehand that were not based on graph algorithms, that were based on simple, uh, like, you know, just, hey, uh, features, uh, usually it's words, and, um, um, uh, uh, you know, trying to score the importance of a site that way. Um, whereas this way turned out to be kind of an order of magnitude better uh, than other search engines. And that's why Google ultimately won out because they were using sounds computer science. Uh, even though it wasn't a perfect solution, it was a much, much better solution and it scaled uh, it's scaled beautifully well until today. So, um, and that might be changing soon, but uh, uh, that's why Google became very, very successful. They contributed something real to the ecosystem and, and not just real, but real big. So, okay, again, let's take this back to a machine learning situation. Uh, you could kind of say, hey, what can I do if there's a network or a graph included in something that I'm trying to learn. And for those of you who don't do machine learning, let's think about like how you could use this in your life. Well, um, like PageRank, maybe you can assume that there's a back and forth relationship between uh, the nodes on the graph. So maybe you could say, hey, if I have a friend graph, I'm being affected by my friends and I am affecting my other friends. Maybe that sort of, um, that sort of will encourage you to... Um, to uh, encourage your friends in a, in a positive way and, uh, and maybe even uh, uh, pick the right friends. Um, and if you have any graph in terms of any like, you know, uh, machine learning problem that you are uh, coming up with, let's say, you know, at Foursquare, we often talk about users uh, of Foursquare. We could talk about people who go to the same places. We could talk about people who are literally friends on Foursquare. Uh, we could talk about things like that. And so we could say, well, they're kind of similar to each other. Um, and so there's a lot of connection here to learning by analogy, which I've talked to in the past before, where it's like you assume that uh, things that are close by are analogous and therefore they should be similar in terms of the problem that you're trying to resolve. But one of the interesting things about these graphs is that it's not always the case that you're similar to your neighbors on the graph. Uh, sometimes it is. I think maybe for websites it is, where it's like, hey, websites are, um, are, are important websites linked to other important websites, and, less, and they don't link to less important websites. Less important websites kind of link randomly and maybe don't, uh, don't tell you which site is important. So uh, maybe there's some similarity metric there, Maybe there's some kind of similarity metric to your friend graph in real life, although I think it's a lot more complicated than that because your friends aren't necessarily similar to you. And most people have different groups of friends which are similar in one area, like maybe you went to the same school or you're interested in the same hobby 
or something like that, or you live in the same building, but you could be very different in other areas. So it's not like, you know, friends, your, your friends from grad school are more likely to be, uh, have the same politics as you or, or, you know, your friends from work are likely to enjoy the same food. So the, the friend graph is a lot more complicated. But an interesting counterexample where matches don't necessarily equal um, specific similarity is in, is in dating. Um, so I actually read a paper about five, six years ago, uh, and I don't know if anyone actually dates like this, but they, they used uh, the example of a dating app to show how uh, matches and friends are not necessarily similar to each other. So for example, if I am trying to play matchmaker and I find one person who would be a great match for you and another person who would be a great match for you, that doesn't necessarily mean that those two people would date each other. Uh, probably not. If we're talking about just, uh, you know, heterosexual dating and, uh, you know, you're, you're a woman and I find, uh, uh, two men who would, uh, who, who would be good matches, uh, they would probably not be matches for each other, uh, to date each other. So, uh, that is something called, uh, so, uh, they identified something called split complex numbers which is uh, used to model this situation. I found this fascinating. Again, I don't, <laughs> I don't know if anyone who is spending their time analyzing dating using split complex numbers actually gets a date, but <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, but uh, the interesting idea, so for those of you who are um, familiar with complex numbers, you know, there's, there's like the, the, the real numbers, you know, positive numbers, negative numbers, and then you have this number i, where i times i is negative one. Uh, split complex numbers is similar. It also has an I, except in that case, I times I gets you back to one. And the idea is that uh, people who are connected, uh, so everybody, every two people has a score that is related to each other. And if you are similar to someone, and that's usually someone of the same gender, then your score will be close to one. If you're different from somebody, of let's say the same gender again i'm talking about um i'm talking about uh opposite sex dating you are um ranked negative one so if you're on the real axis in similarity with someone then you're you're likely to be the same gender now if you are uh a good match if you're a good dating match for someone you would um your score with relation to each other would be i and then of course let's say um, you know, let's say I would match with you and someone else would, let, let's say like, I, I'm, I'm looking for matches for somebody for, uh, for person A and I find they match with B and C. So B and A match, have an I score and C and A have an I score. Then you multiply them together to get the score between B and C, which is one. And essentially that means that if you have two matches, or multiple matches that would be good matches to you. They're not matches with each other, but they're similar to each other. And if I have a good match for you and a bad match for you, then those two people would probably be different from each other. So that's a really interesting example of where uh, you might have a graph uh, where you're not necessarily making the assumption that uh, nodes that are connected are similar, but they're related in some way. 
And so there's a whole class of algorithms and thought experiments that you can come up with that, uh, that, 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 that look at these ideas. I'm going to link to that paper. I'm going to look at uh, who wrote that paper. That is, uh, okay, so that's from the Institute, uh, uh, University of Koblenz-Landau in Germany. So I'm not even going to try to pronounce these names, folks. It's from far away, but it's very interesting. Um, all right, so... That's all I have for today. Uh, I know it's, it's kind of a, a little bit of a, a, a scattered group of uh, news stories today, but I am looking forward to this summer, and we are uh, we are going full steam ahead in the local maximum. I got some really good. I'm going to probably hopefully talk to Aaron again next week, and we are going to roll into some more interviews. So, um, yeah, it's uh, it's I'm. I'm I, I have a really great feeling about the rest of this year and this summer. I, I could really ramp up what we're doing on the local maximum. I feel like, you know, the last year and a half with the pandemic and everything that's been going on has been really tough. And it's been a pleasure keeping this podcast alive. And now that we've survived up to this point, um, I'm, I think it's time to uh, I think it's time to expand once again. Uh, so if you want to help me do that, check out my locals. Uh, maximum.locals.com Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. To support The Local Maximum, sign up for exclusive content and their online community at maximum.locals.com The Local Maximum is available wherever podcasts are found. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe on your podcast app. Also, check out the website with show notes and additional materials at localmaxradio.com If you want to contact me, the host, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. Have a great week. Feel the power.